0: gorgeous music you just heard is from a concertino for harpsichord and strings by the English composer Walter Lee. It comes from a new album on Sadie Records of 20th century harpsichord concertos featuring harpsichordist Jory Vineker with the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records and producer of this delightful album, And as listeners to this podcast know, every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, and this is our new release for June 2019, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. And I'm so delighted that my guest on this month's podcast is soloist on this album, Jory Vineker. Hi, Jory. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. This is Jory's second album on Sadie Records. Last year, about the same time, actually, we released an album with Jory and violinist Rachel Barden-Pine of the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord of J.S. Bach. So Jory was sharing billing with Rachel on that one. This is his first album for CD as the sole soloist. But it's certainly not his only album as soloist. Uh, Jory has many albums to his credit, including two Grammy nominees. Jory, why don't you talk a little bit about your history as a performer and a recording artist?
1: The spotty career as a recording artist, even at the beginning, I decided about 25-some-odd years ago to do a recording of chacons and Passacaglia's for the harpsichord. So music from Frescobaldi all the way to Giorgio Rigetti. So I think even at that point, I was showing a desire to touch upon the 20th century repertoire for harpsichord.
0: Great. And to go even further back... Can you talk about your history with the instrument, when you began playing it, etc.?
1: Sure. I think everybody has their own history. How did they grow up to be a musician? With a harpsichord, it's a little bit special. Even today, I don't think most American children, even very musical ones, directly encounter a harpsichord in their day-to-day musical goings-on. But I started listening to harpsichord music very, very early. I was fascinated with this, if harpsichord works would appear on a television program, for instance, the Elizabeth R. series on PBS about, goodness, 35, 40 years ago or more. I was fascinated with the music of William Byrd and his followers, and I was just dying to get my hands on a harpsichord, but was a pianist. And the moment I went off to college, literally on the first day at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, I sought out the harpsichord professor and began lessons at that point along with my piano studies.
0: So it wasn't until then you actually studied harpsichord formally?
1: Or even saw one.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. When did you start with the piano?
1: A little more typically, I'd say, about age six. And where did you grow up? I grew up in the Chicago suburbs in Mount Prospect, which is a thriving
0: metropolis not terribly far
1: from O'Hare Airport.
0: And that, of course, is why you are a CD artist, because you are from the Chicago area. But you've spent a good deal of your adult life in France, haven't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah so
1: I went to college in Baltimore, then stayed seven years in New York, principally at the Manus College of Music and then went off to Paris on a Fulbright scholarship and stayed there absolutely full-time from 1990 till just about five years ago, and I still have a home in France and go back and forth quite
0: a bit. But now you are living in the city itself? I am
1: living in Chicago itself, (laughs) and I'm right in the heart of Chicago in Old Town. I'm enjoying it quite a lot and enjoying the scene and, of course, traveling around the country and around the world with Chicago as my home
0: point. Excellent. So let's move on to the album that we're here to discuss. How did the idea for this project come about?
1: So this is very interesting and of course Jim you're a key figure in this, the essential figure. I think I have wanted to create a record album of modern concerti for the harpsichord since probably about 20 years Mm -hmm. and there is an interesting repertoire. We can say it's a limited repertoire, of course. It's not like concerti for piano or concerti for violin in terms of 20th century output. However, it's a fascinating output. And I've performed on numerous occasions, for instance, the Concert Champêtre, which is the harpsichord concerto by Francis Poulenc, and a kind of a large-scale piece, harpsichord with a symphonic orchestra, and works by Frank Martin and Martineau. But I had become interested in performing and recording, let's say, slightly more offbeat works. I had performed, I think, six or seven times the Concerto for Amplified Harpsichord and Strings by Michael Nyman going back to the late 90s, performed that in Lausanne and in Grenoble, and I don't remember where else. And along with that, works like the Walter Lee, this charming little concertino that we heard a bit of a second movement. The Lee I've performed in Mexico and in London, and I don't know where else. And I started to wonder what it would be to put together such an album. And I got as far as to discuss this with another orchestra in another country, and I won't name names, and it just sort of fell through the gradings, let's say, and then finally bringing it up again with your fine self uh, a couple of years ago. You responded in such a vigorous way to this, and we were immediately discussing which pieces because, of course, there was a far greater choice than just the four we had, and we even had, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of different choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, along with that. And it was just a fascinating output. But without your tremendous support and enthusiasm, this just wouldn't have happened.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that I was able to help nudge this along. Well, let's talk about the repertoire in order, starting with the Lee. Of course, we heard an excerpt from the second movement to begin this podcast. And in a moment, we'll hear the whole third movement, because it's very short, less than two minutes, The first moment, I would say, has a very pastoral feel. Yes. But why don't you describe the concerto?
1: It's something which is fascinating to me. I think there are a couple of different elements. Lee was actually something of a great success. He had a West End musical piece, Jolly Roger. So he was enjoying real success. His career was taking off, and yet he served his country and died, unfortunately, in his mid-30s. And I think today the piece that survives is indeed this little harpsichord concertino neo folkloric english school this is 1934 so composers like ray Vaughan williams are already very active at this point so we have some of that kind of modal quality to all of this writing, and yet there are little echoes all the same of Elgar. In the first movement of this concerto especially, there is more than tip of the hat to Bach's Fifth Brandenburg Concerto, the cadenza, namely. So some very fun and brilliant keyboard writing. And at the same time, Lee intended this to be a piece which would be possible for a talented keyboardist, so harpsichordist or eventually pianist, to perform with an intermediary string ensemble.
0: And Lee unfortunately died in his 30s, so we don't have a great output from him.
1: No, actually Lee was enjoying a fine career. His stage work was being performed on the West End in London. I think his reputation would have only increased. And his loss, along with another composer, I think of George Butterworth, these extremely sad losses for English 20th century music.
0: It says here in the program notes that he was with the Royal Armored Corps and killed in action in In Libya. Yes, in
1: North Africa. Yes, on the North African forces.
0: Well, to start this podcast, we heard an excerpt, a really beautiful one, from the second moment of this concertino. It's very short. We're now going to hear the whole third movement, which in the program notes Robert Tift calls Jig like. Well, what would you like to add to that?
1: Yeah, I agree with Robert, who is so knowledgeable on all of the conserva of the 20th century, you can't even imagine what this gentleman knows. Jig <laughs> like, and there's another element. There's a very Spanish flavor to this. This is another ongoing. How would we want to call that? A little bit of a trend, a little bit of an air in English music at the time. Another favorite example, William Walton in one of his sets of facades, the three songs in this case for soprano and piano, each of the songs has a different thing. Mm -hmm. The first song, for instance, is fake folk. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second is Spanish, a kind of bolero And this third movement of the Lee very much, uh, as much as it is a jig, it's probably Spanish-inflected. And this, again, seems to be a flavor of the day (laughs) in England at the time.
0: Well, I think the thing that's probably most noticeable right away is his use of syncopation.
1: Of course, it's just highly rhythmic and playful syncopation. When I'm trying to think through the piece in my head, I think of the amusing castanet bits. So the repeated notes on the harpsichord, imitating the kind of flamenco-y guitar.
0: All right, well, let's hear that then. Here is the Allegro Vivace, third movement of the concertino for harpsichord and strings by Walter Lee. My guest, Jory Vineker, is the harpsichord soloist with the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck. just heard the third movement of a concertino for harpsichord and strings by English composer Walter Lee, a piece from 1934. That movement marked Allegro Vivace, and it certainly was in that performance, by Jory Vineker and the Chicago Philharmonic, conducted by Scott Speck. While there aren't a lot of recordings of this piece, I noticed that some pretty major players have recorded That's George right. Malcolm, Trevor Pinnock, Colin Tilney. Did you listen to those recordings before preparing this one?
1: I am positive to have heard Malcolm's recording many years ago. And this could be a kind of a reference recording, partially because the age of the performer. He's not so many decades uh, after Lee's time. Also, the instrument on which George Malcolm plays is an instrument by the English harpsichord company Goebel, So here, we're not really talking about historic reproductions. We're talking about these big harpsichords with heavy framework, an extra set of strings at a 16-foot level, so an octave below, and everything controlled by pedals, and in the case of the Goebel, even pedals on a half hitch, so you can add a hint of the string in question as opposed to just kicking on and off stops. So that may be the reference recording. Tilney is very certainly playing on a historic reproduction, so, like me, has decided that a proper Baroque harpsichord is a beautiful instrument on which to perform this piece. And Pinnock's I'm not familiar with.
0: So this might be a good time to ask about the instrument on which you play the first three pieces on this program.
1: So the instrument belongs to me, (laughs) Um, it's a beautiful instrument by Tony Chinnery. He is a British maker who spent the better part of his life near Florence, celebrated all through Europe, as well as in this country. My instrument is, in a way, a very typical French Baroque copy. So a two-keyboard instrument, five octaves, copied after an instrument by Tasquin, which is found in the Edinburgh Collection. And this is, of course, an artistic choice. But when we speak of a work like Walter Lee's concerto from 1934, Lee had probably never seen something resembling a real historic reproduction. These were what we call today revival instruments, so basically harpsichord mechanism, if you will, but with some quote-unquote improvements. So the pedals to control stops, generally a set of 16-foot strings that we can thank der Randowska for a little bit, Bach's final harpsichord certainly had that set of strings, but that does not mean that all harpsichords should or sound better with this sometimes lugubrious addition. So I decided, and I'm not the first, that a number of these modern works sound very, very well indeed on a beautiful Baroque reproduction, although I can think of an exception or two in the modern repertory.
0: Excellent. Well, let's move on to the next piece, which is a real discovery here. This is by yes. a Chicago composer, um, incredible, Ned Roram, born in 1923. And he wrote his Concertino da Camera at age 23 in 1946. But the piece wasn't heard for a very, very long time. Can you give a little bit of that history and how you found it? Yeah, this is quite a remarkable thing,
1: really. I recorded Ned Roram's harpsichord piece, Spiders. I don't recall Ned's publisher, I think Boozy and Hawks, although I'm not positive that Spiders was an initial Boozy and Hawks publication. But it's known to, I'd say, many harpsichordists. They've seen it on the shelf, as it were. I learned it for my Fulbright auditions way, way, way back when, probably 1989, very, very difficult work. And then I came back to it about five years ago when I did a contemporary harpsichord album and loved the piece. But I had seen, I think in a Grove Dictionary, that Roram had indeed composed a harpsichord concerto. No other information, no publisher. I was able to contact Ned Roram through Boozy and Hawks, who put me in touch with his niece, who is also his executor. And thank you to Mary Marshall for all of her support. And she accepted to get a copy out of the Library of Congress for me, out of uh, Ned Rorem's archives. And I slowly looked at the piece. My partner, Philippe Leroy, retranscribed it so that we had a clean score to work with. And I then discovered that Another person simultaneously had the same idea, and I think this was in a Minnesota university, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, so it's a
0: 1993 performance, which I think is findable online?
1: I never found the performance, oh. I, and I look like, heck, you know, again, and I wish the performer much luck, but the solo performer is not somebody who has gone on to use harpsichord in her career. I think this was a college project.
0: I should note that that 1993 performance is conducted by Alexander Platt, who is That's no right. stranger to the CD label, having conducted on our recordings of the opera, The Good Soldier Schweik, oh by Robert Kirk with Chicago Opera Theater, and on Rachel Barden Pine's Scottish Fantasies album with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. But we can for sure say that this is the first professional recording, all professional musicians, and the first commercially released recording. And it's quite an
1: extraordinary piece.
0: I'm not even positive
1: I would know where to begin in describing it. The nearest comparison is Darius Millot, who, a little bit like Roram himself, very prolific, wrote a harpsichord concerto. And Ned's piece, although I think he very distinctly hears the harpsichord in his inner ear. The keyboard writing is rather pianistic, so very thick, very, very difficult and challenging. And certainly the seven instrumental parts accompanying it are also a real handful. But the effect is so colorful, so incredibly charming. I find it terribly French. That might just be my mm. vent. And Roram, of course, has a great affinity for France. Went to live there, I think, immediately after composing this work.
0: Interesting, because I definitely hear the piece as having neoclassical elements and having that classic mid- 20th century American feel, which is not surprising for a young composer in 1946.
1: Of course, but I think at the same time, Carter is already mm-hmm. composing, and Roram, there's just the charm these extended
0: But that's actually interesting that you mention that, because Carter's early, early works from the 40s yeah. are not dissimilar to this.
1: In some ways, I agree yeah. with that. Even the yeah. piano sonata. Or the pastoral
0: for clarinet and piano, for example.
1: Which I'd have to listen to once more. Even the, the sonata is almost Mm Copeland-like. I mean, Copeland with extensions, I suppose. And here, I guess, Rorm's own harmonic language, mostly through his career, not entirely, but mostly remained a more gentle one. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of elements. The extremely lyrical second movement, for instance. The third movement is more playful and sparkling than in any way, say, aggressively American or driving.
0: In the notes, you refer to Roram as the doyen of American music. Can you talk about Roram's importance in the American musical landscape and also
1: to you as a musician? To me as a musician, that's a very easy one. When I went off to college, again, age 18, like we all do, at Peabody, I am not sure that I had heard of Ned Roram prior to that, but I certainly had by uh, the first week or so when I discovered Roram's songs. And actually, I take that back. There was an album which I adored through my last couple of years of high school, songs by Ned Roram on one side. And by one side, I do mean of a 33 RPM record, Roram on one side, Samuel Barber on the other. And just gorgeous, gorgeous songs. And throughout my college years, Peabody, then Manis, anybody who worked with singers was just absolutely obliged to play uh, many of these songs. Uh, that was just a canon of the American Leader songbook. If we talk about the Great American Songbook, Gershwin Porter, etc I think the Great American Leader book, well, Roram, Samuel Barber, John Duke, perhaps. And I just loved these. And I did not much encounter instrumental music of Ned Roram through college. I was familiar with another chamber work, which featured harpsichord. And then towards the end of my college years, I learned and played Spiders for solo harpsichord. But other than that, I associated with him as a composer of vocal music, and mm-hmm. I still do. I think the songs are just wonderful, and I do hope that young singers, particularly in this country, are still treating Roram with the respect they did when I was a kid.
0: Now, before we hear an excerpt from this piece, I should note that it's scored differently from the other three on the album, which are all harpsichord and strings. Yes, This has a more mixed ensemble, hence the title Concertino da Camera, and has strings and winds and even a cornet. Can you talk a little about the balances and the flavors you get from that?
1: I would assume that Ned heard Manuel de Falla's Concerto for Harpsichord and Ensemble. And this, like Ned's piece, Ned at least calls it a Concertino da Camera, Falla's Concerto is harpsichord pitted against flute, oboe, clarinet, violin, cello. cello right. So Roram, influenced by this, writes a chamber work for a very solistic harpsichord pitted against a group of seven musicians. A bit later, I think about 10 years later, Elliot Carter writes a wonderful quartet, which is not so terribly distanced from this. And I've played this, but in the distant past, harpsichord along with flute, oboe, cello.
0: In fact, I should note, both the Defaia and that early Elliot Carter piece are on one of sadie's first recordings with harpsichordist david schrader and the rembrandt chamber players
1: which features barbara hafner the cellist that's right hi barbara who and we uh, heard in the piece that opened this podcast that lovely cello solo was barbara so coming back then to roram he did not actually get to hear this piece performed he was good friends with the american composer and harpsichordist daniel pinkham a truly charming figure of american music history and pinkham taught Ned everything he knew about the harpsichord. This is a quote from Ned directly. Ned wrote the piece. My understanding was that he had it sent off to Wanda Rondowska, who was probably uh, nearing 80 and maybe didn't respond or just wasn't interested. The piece got shelved for nearly 50 years. So Roram never heard what the balances were like. To my absolute amazement, and again with the Cornet replacing a trumpet, so a, a much more round and mellow sound. The balance is quite fantastic. And, Jim, you, you might remind me of this. I think we performed this at the synagogue in That's right. Hyde Park. K.A.M. Israel. KM Israel without any amplification of the harpsichord. I think we had something right. prepared and then decided it. Yep. So the balances are kind of great, and Roram very cleverly uses a harpsichord alone much of the time for the recording, of course. As would be normal, we are able to balance the instrument as we want, and in some of the more thick passages, the harpsichord still stands out alongside the instruments. But in terms of having a solo trumpet or cornet, this works wonderfully.
0: And it, the cornet really gives the piece a very distinctive flavor. I do a quick shout-out at this point to Sadie Records engineer Bill Malone for those, Hi, Bill. <laughs> those excellent balances on this recording because anything with harpsichord against other instruments, and especially in this case where there's winds and even a cornet involved, does present challenges, which I think Bill surpassed at every turn. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And another Bill, Bill Denton, who plays this cornet solo with such refined Absolutely. elegance.
0: In fact, I will give the players in just a moment, but before I play an excerpt of the first movement, I'd ask what input or insights Ned Roram, who is now 95, had, if any, into your performance. So, in fact, I could
1: say tremendously and none whatsoever. So, there were no performance insights, but his genuine enthusiasm that I was there performing the piece, spending this time, was palpable. But he had absolutely nothing to say about performance.
0: Interesting. Although I will note that when he got a chance to hear the recording, he said, and I quote, thank you to Jory Vineker for this perfect recording.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ned. So a few years back when I had recorded this American album, 20th Century Music for Harpsichord, solo music, of course, the record came out. I had this sent to Ned, well, to his executor. He invited me over to his apartment on the Upper West Side in New York. I went over to Ned's apartment, inserted the compact disc into his CD player, and he asked me to play it three times in a row. So, I mean, real enthusiasm for this. And I think he had recall of the piece. So he was tremendously enthusiastic about performances, but he didn't in any way interfere. And I hope if he was in any way displeased, he would have said something, but clearly it wasn't the case.
0: Well, let's hear some of that perfect performance now. This is from the first movement, from the Ned Roram Concertino da Camera, And performing on this recording, on Sadie Records, are Desiree Roustraat violin, Aurelian Petterzoli viola, Barbara Hoffner cello, Mary Stolper flute, Anne Bach oboe, Louis Kirk bassoon, and William Denton cornet, along with, of course, our harpsichord soloist and guest on this podcast, Jerry Vineker. This is quite a who's who of Chicago freelance players, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, it is. Yeah, it really is. Yes.
1: Also quite fun in Roram's Concertino. In the first movement, there's an extended cadenza wherein Ned seems to channel the ghost of Scarlatti quite a bit with some rather impossible hand crossings. I think I can even possibly name the sonata, which is a source for that. But that was a lot of fun and also the source of me wishing to rip my hair out at various points.
0: Oh, dear. All right. Well, let's hear some of that now. This is from the first movement of Ned Rorem's Concertino da Camera. just heard an excerpt from the first movement of a concertino da camera, as it's called, by American composer, in fact, Chicago-born composer Ned Roram. That was performed by Joy Vineker and a real who's who of Chicago instrumental players, Desiree Rustrat, violin, Aurelian Pedersoli viola, Barbara Hafner cello, Mary Stolper flute, and Bach oboe, Lewis Kirk bassoon, and William Denton cornet. And that is on the new Sadie Records album of 20th century Arpscore Concertos with Jory Vineker, and in the larger pieces, the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck. This is the one unconducted piece on the album. And you can get that at cedrecords.org. that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, and anywhere else that albums are sold, streamed, downloaded, you name it, we're there. So I hope you'll have a chance to enjoy this really spectacular album and now we come to, although not a world premiere recording, perhaps the most rare item on the album, and also the largest by quite a bit. This is a concerto for harpsichord and strings by Czech composer Victor Kalabis, who has a very interesting history. Can you talk a little bit about him?
1: Yes, Victor Kalabis, Czech composer. He is known to many harpsichord players because his wife was the great harpsichordist Susanna Ruchitskova, Czech performer, who is the survivor of three concentration camps, survived that to become one of the prominent Czech classical musicians. And I say that without any hesitation, not just prominent Czech harpsichordists, that would go without saying, but along with people like Josef Suk, she was Absolutely all over the world, she fought against so many hardships, not only the concentration camps, but even her lack of fondness for the Soviet and communist regimes in Czech Republic and still managed to have a career and have reputation.
0: And make many recordings on the state label
1: Superfund. Many, 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 many recordings. And these remain, you know, whatever your take on Baroque performance practice and so forth and so on, they remain passionate and committed and fascinating. And I was greatly fortunate to meet Susana and Victor back in 1994. I participated in the first Prague Spring competition that featured harpsichord. Won first prize in that competition, became friendly with Madame Ruchitskova, And Victor Calabis, he had a work commissioned for that competition, a prelude aria and toccata, as I recall, a very fun piece. And I didn't play that again because I preferred another set of harpsichord pieces he had called Aquarelles, so watercolors. And I played those a number of times and should come back to them. They're beautiful. And I knew there was a harpsichord concerto. We spoke about that. Uh, That's to say Madame Ruchoskova and Victor and myself. And there's also an extremely good sonata for violin and harpsichord, which I would love to play, for instance, with Rachel Barton Pine. And she and I have been discussing it. Oh,
0: excellent.
1: And I remember hearing the harpsichord concerto on recording with her playing and thinking it was beautiful and somewhat severe or sober, or I'm not sure what the word is. And since opportunities to perform... Modern works with orchestra are not just, um, how do I say, a dropping on my calendar like <laughs> fries. I never quite got around to it. And as you and I began to seriously discuss this recording, I hadn't come back to this piece. I was thinking of two different works one by Goreski, the Polish composer, and another by Bohuslav Martinu for harpsichord, along with mixed chamber orchestra featuring god forbid a solo piano mm-hmm. within that and i don't know at what point it again may have been my partner who is another person who is extraordinarily knowledgeable about repertoire and 20th century repertory but i came back to Carabies, and thought this is really 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 worth playing it's really worth hearing worth bringing out i then wrote to you with a little bit of trepidation because you have a lot on your plate too, Jim. And your response was pretty immediate. I don't recall your words, but you said, let's go for it. And I'm so glad we did. I think there is so much to say in the work. There's a very personal harmonic language. I'm not even quite sure how I would describe this. It's certainly in the category of Soviet-type composers of a certain thing. So there's a certain severity in the writing and yet by no means lacking playfulness and intellectual challenges. However, what strikes me the most in the work is the extraordinary great use of the harpsichord and the harpsichord against the orchestra.
0: And the harpsichord writing really is masterful. Think of that quote on Stravinsky when he talked about his violin concerto. He said, it should smell of the violin. I feel like that's the case with the harpsichord in this concerto.
1: That's a wonderful quote, and it really does so many pieces feel like the composer to some extent. Even if that composer is thinking of the harpsichord and the distinctive plucked sound, they're really writing piano music. And even, let's say, de Faya, to name a composer who's long gone, that concerto is absolutely piano music. And. You can just feel that Faya would be trying to push an imaginary sustaining pedal (laughs) that doesn't exist. And, you know, we play the piece anyway because it's great music and powerful. But Calibis profoundly understands how the harpsichord sounds. And especially in the brilliant writing and the quick writing, it's so idiomatic, so clever. And, of course, not without challenge. It's not kids' music. But the harpsichord always sounds as it must. Although Madame Ruchitskova spent most of her career, and certainly at the time this concerto was written for her, she was playing on Eastern European revival instruments, principally Amer, and yet the instrument that I'm playing, my own uh, French Baroque copy, sounds extraordinary for this piece.
0: Did you consult at all with Madame Ruchitskova as you were preparing for this oh, project?
1: Yeah. Yes, and I mean this is both wonderful and very sad, so by the time that I uh, <laughs> hatched the idea that I deeply wanted to play this piece and that it was something missing from my repertoire for two and a half decades. I wrote to you. You gave your approval. I wrote by email, I think, to the Rucheskova and karabis Foundation. I received a note, and I don't recall if this was from Emily Vogel, who's been a wonderful contact to us, but saying, uh, Susanna would like to have your personal address. so I provided that. I received a beautiful handwritten card from her expressing her affection and enthusiasm for this project. I am saving that very preciously at home, of course. And unfortunately, several months before we began the recording process, she passed on. I think she was 91 years of Mm -hmm. age, had uh, been suffering from cancer, So it's a great, great regret to me that she just couldn't hear the recording. I think she'd love to know that the next generations are still remembering her husband's work. She knew that we were doing this.
0: She had the only previous recording of this piece. Yes. And, you know, some artists would perhaps guard that jealously. But in fact, I should note that her foundation actually supported this project.
1: They did indeed. They stepped forward. They gave us a generous grant to help make this possible I won't claim to have known her intimately. I was extremely fond of her, but I've seen her probably three times in my life when I won the Prague competition. And when I returned to perform basically a winner's recital in Prague in uh, 95, I was invited along with my father to her apartment in Prague. And I sat and had tea and cakes with uh, Susanna and Victor. And he was another extraordinary individual. Incredibly warm brilliant people who survived a great deal with their humanity and humor and affection intact, and then
0: some. Well, let's hear an excerpt from this really remarkable piece. This is from the third moment marked Allegro Vivo. Is there anything special you want to say about this moment?
1: This is interesting. I read this either from Mr. Calabes himself, not in remarks, obviously directed to me, but about the piece. Describing it as very playful, and yet most listeners, and this includes members of the Chicago Philharmonic. I had a number of musicians come to me just saying they were uh, overwhelmed with the piece. Much more than playful, it feels very moving. There's a very dark undercurrent. Robert Tift speaks about that in his notes. There is certainly something very serious going on within the piece. And yet in this last movement, we have the brilliant toccata-like writing for the harpsichord, alternating chords between the two hands. It's a lot of fun to hear. And I don't know what it is in the language where we know that Carabes is somehow addressing darker concerns. The second movement, that's much more clear. It's a very profound movement. And I would compare that to another piece he wrote for his wife, the piano concertino, which is utterly bright and charming and lovely. So, yeah, I think he knows very well what he's wanting to say in this harpsichord concerto.
0: Well, let's hear that then. This is from the third moment of the harpsichord concerto by Czech composer Victor Kalabies. Once again, Jory Vineker harpsichord with the Chicago Philharmonic or Strings of the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck. We just heard an excerpt from movement number three of the Harpsichord Concerto, a really substantial work at 28 minutes long by Victor Kaliby's Czech composer, really wonderful one too, and that was with Jory Vinegar Harpsichord and the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck. It's from Sadie Records' new album for release June 2019 of 20th Century Harpsichord Concertos. And now we come to or as they say, on Monty Python, and now for something completely different. The first three concertos we heard were with standard harpsichord balanced against strings, or in one case, a chamber ensemble, in the case of the Rorum. But now we come to contemporary composer Michael Nyman's Concerto for Amplified Harpsichord and strings, so obviously this is a very different use of the instrument. Are there other concertos or other works that call for the harpsichord to be amplified?
1: Yes, frankly. Uh, so Naiman, at least, is explicit in his title, and as you and I found in communication with Michael, he really wants this. Another work which would require as an absolute necessity this type of treatment would be the much shorter Concertino by Goretsky. And one reason that I finally decided not to perform that work is because of its resemblance to the Naiman or vice versa in some respects. So it would be absolutely not performable without significant amplification. And in fact, Jim, even in some standard works, I, things that I certainly don't think are so far off the beaten path musically, Poulenc's Concert Champêtre, it is not possible to perform that with a major orchestra without... Clever amplification, and I've performed it uh, nearly 20 times. But Nyman calls for something rather different. So I think Nyman, who not only is a composer of music for film and opera and symphonic music, but tours with his own Michael Nyman band, I think the idea of having the harpsichord being a little bit rock and roll is not terribly difficult to fathom. The piece is a great, great deal of fun to play, but extraordinarily challenging
0: and involves a string complement considerably larger than the one used in the Lee and even the Calabis.
1: It is, and it's a heck of a lot of divisi writing. I don't remember how things are divided up, but certainly the violins are in six parts at one point. gets six violins, four violas, four celli, and double bass, and a lot of this is written as divisi. So a lot of extremely challenging writing for the strings. I understand this is a piece you've performed quite a bit. Can you talk about your history with it? Absolutely. So I worked extensively with a French conductor, Mark Minkowski, who is most famous for being a great performer of Baroque music, for Deutsche Grammophon. He recorded several Handel operas. I performed on at least two or th- even three of those and many other recordings with Mark. But when he became director of the Chamber Orchestra of Grenoble, which integrated with his own historic performance ensemble, Les Musiciens du Louvre, he had to do some things which were out of his comfort zone, and that included the occasional contemporary work. And one day he came to me and said, do you know who Michael Nyman is? Well, of, of course, i certainly a film lover. I've seen many Peter Greenaway films, said, well, there's a harpsichord concerto, and it sounds pretty interesting, and I think it would be a great piece for us to do at the Contemporary Music Festival in Grenoble. And this could be 96 or seven. I mean, quite some time ago. The piece is written when in 90, 95. 95. So let's say probably not more than two, three years after that. And Elizabeth Hoshnayska, its dedicacy, had already performed the work and recorded it. I will say it was a handful to get around. But with Mark, I performed it four times. So two for the Festival in Grenoble, another two at the Flanders Opera with their Symphonic Orchestra series, and then in Brussels with the Charlemagne Chamber Orchestra. And perhaps the most memorable of these performances was with the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra, who is, of course, an extraordinary group, a kind of Rolls-Royce of chamber orchestras with a very, very, dark and humorous Romanian conductor, a great one, but who said, I'm very impressed. I thought the piece was unplayable.
0: (laughs) Well, and speaking of your history of performance, there was also a performance, very appropriately when you hear this piece, especially the opening, uh, on Halloween of 2016, right before we recorded it, with the Chicago Philharmonic and Scott Speck.
1: Oh, that was great fun. And so I think there had been some gap between uh, that 2016 performance and when I previously played it, Scott is very intrepid and of course was not going to think for a moment that this was unplayable. And we had quite a bit of fun with it. And that 2016 concert was kind of a riot. And along with Nyman, I made my debut as a Clavinet soloist in Randall Wolfe's highly, highly amusing My Insect Bride.
0: Why don't you talk a little
1: bit about the audience reaction to the piece? So over the years, this is a little bit dependent on things. Both in Grenoble and Lausanne, very specifically, the audience reaction was about as near as I'm going to get as a harpsichord it was to a rock concert. I mean, <laughs> uh, like like ovation out the door. A very exciting performances. I think in Chicago it went over very well. Audience reaction very good. Scott Speck would probably tell you the same thing. The piece is very challenging. And I think we felt at the concert that there were a lot of bolts which needed to be tightened in order to make the piece thrilling. And there is, of course, in minimalist language, a lot of repetition. That's part of the thing. But to maintain tension, swing, drive is yet another thing, of course. It's not enough just to say that the piece repeats. And what needed to be tightened up in the 2016 concert was by all means done in the recording sessions where Scott was an ever-smiling taskmaster and brought us to the precision we needed to make this really spine tingling.
0: Actually, I wanted to ask you at this point to talk a little bit about what it was like working on this piece and on the whole program with Scott and the Chicago Phil.
1: Oh, a lot of fun, and Scott is. First of all, he's just such a good guy. There is not a heck of a lot of conductor diva, and not a heck of a lot means none at all. He's (laughs) just a wonderful individual, very hardworking. I think, especially for the Nyman, which presented a special set of challenges. He was so on point with everything that needed to be done, and not treating the concert as a final arrival point that we then just needed to record. So the, he was precious to work with on this. And in the other works, of course, a wonderful musician. And I think for him, as well as for the orchestra, Carabis was a special discovery.
0: Now, unlike Ned Roram, Nyman, who's also still with us, he did have some input and insights
1: So Michael was so enthusiastic about the recording. We've been in touch quite a bit. I had certainly let him know uh, 15 or 20 years ago that I had been performing the piece but never heard back from Michael or his representatives at that time. And here he was very much in contact. And his input, although he was very enthusiastic and excited, was the harpsichord should be louder, louder, louder. And then when it was louder, louder again.
0: Yes. In fact, uh, I remember that Bill and I did a mix, which we thought was pretty good. And I think you, Jory, first encouraged us to make the harp score louder. Bill remixed it with really this larger-than-life sound in mind. And I thought, OK, we really have it now. And then you sent it to Nyman, and he said? <laughs> he said, well, if we could go
1: about three times more than this, I think we've got it. Yeah. So it's something like that, no? Yeah.
0: So we took that back and basically boosted the harpsichord as much as we could without the orchestra feeling a total like distortion. Yeah, right. Without it being distorted and without the orchestra sounding like an afterthought. So it, it was actually not a straight boost. We went through it very carefully and figured out exactly where the balances were. The harpsichord could come out stronger. Where the places were where you really to back did it off need a to, little bit, or yeah. where you needed to hear more of the orchestra. And I think he was happy with the final result. Yes, and it gives a more
1: nuanced and terraced result than one might be able to achieve, really, in live performance, although that has another set of uh, qualities.
0: In a live performance, you'd have to set the harpsichord at one level and kind of leave it there, whereas here we were able to be a little more nuanced with it. And
1: quite honestly, again, in the experience of playing the piece prior to 2016, I'm counting six performances. The very successful ones are the ones where the conductor accepted to have this unnaturally Rock and roll, you know, electric guitar, harpsichord. It's what the piece is calling for. Composer wants it and the music wants it.
0: So the piece is 21 minutes long and there are no formal movements, but there are some obvious sections. And on the album, we've divided it into six. And I think we'll play some of the menomoso, which is a really beautiful slow section the in the middle. The tango for
1: Tim. This is a kind of a lament uh, for a friend of Michael Nyman's who passed away shortly before he composed the work. And it's a truly beautiful thing.
0: And then I think we'll segue right from that to the ending after the big cadenza because that'll give you a real sense of, as you put it, rock and roll nature oh, of yes. this piece. Yeah. This is the one piece where you play a different instrument, actually built by the Chicago builder, Paul Irvin, although I should note Paul moved to the Pacific Northwest a few years ago, but based almost his entire working life here in Chicago. And
1: this was, I felt, the best instrument available to us. I was speaking earlier in our talk about revival instruments, you know, these instruments that have an extra set of strings, 16-foot stops, and I've played this concerto on three occasions on such an instrument, on a playel with Lausanne, and at uh, performances in uh, Flanders Opera on a big instrument by the German manufacturer Sparrake. And I would have considered such an instrument even for our performance and recording, had there been anything compelling available in the Midwest. I don't say just Chicago, even in the Midwest. In the United States, these instruments are incredibly rare. And I, Thought, knowing that I was not going to get that type of instrument, I wanted the biggest, strongest Baroque-type copy, and Paul's instruments are really made to sound. He's built for Chicago Symphony, built for many concert organizations, and my own instrument was not yet in the United States. And even had it been, I felt that Paul's instrument was going to be much better for this. The piece involves a great deal of repeated chord playing. I think my instrument might respond in a very unhappy fashion to that. I'm not entirely positive. So Paul built this wonderful instrument. It belongs to a private individual in Barrington, I believe. And I've used it for a few concerts. Mark Schuldener, an excellent harpsichordist and builder himself here in Chicago, had access to this instrument and tuned and regulated for this recording.
0: So I should note that on the other three pieces, you're playing a dapre French builder. Yes. But this one is listed as Franco-Flemish design. Yeah, a Franco-Flemish. This would
1: be a type of instrument, Paul, is by no means the only one, where instead of pinpointing one very specific instrument, instrument existing either in a private collection or in a museum. He's amalgamating different high baroque harpsichords, putting together a blueprint based on many of these. And in the case of this instrument, there's a very slightly extended range. So instead of five octaves, this instrument is five octaves plus one whole step, so a low F to a high G. Although Nyman's concerto I don't think at any point calls for anything beyond the top F.
0: So here are two parts of Michael Nyman's Concerto for Amplified Harpsichord and Strings. This is from the lyrical menomoso in the middle of the piece, and then the big ending, as it were, and once again, Jory Vineker, very different harpsichord this time, amplified as well, and the Chicago Philharmonic, conducted by Scott Speck. Give you a moment to catch your breath after that ending. That was from Michael Nyman's Concerto for Amplified Harpsichord and Strings. Before the big ending, we heard part of the Menomoso, the slow section in the middle of the concerto. Really terrific and exciting work by this contemporary English composer, and it was performed by Jory Vineker, harpsichord, amplified harpsichord in this case the Chicago Philharmonic conducted by Scott Speck from his and their new recording of 20th Century Harpsichord Concertos on Sadie Records, and it's available at sadierecords.org that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or anywhere else. Recordings are streamed, downloaded, sold as physical CDs, you name it, you can find it, and I hope you will. Before we conclude this podcast, Jory, now that people have had a chance to hear parts of each of the four pieces, what would you like them to take away from hearing the whole program?
1: I would love people to take away, first of all, how wonderful and varied the harpsichord can be. And of course, as with any music, I would love for them to respond to the emotions in these pieces as well as the colors, the extremely differing colors, and even how these differing ensemble colors bring out the harpsichord's innate differences.
0: I have to say, I don't think you could have done a better job of picking four works that show off harpsichord and ensemble so differently. Thank you. So, Jory, as we approach summer 2019, what's next for you?
1: I'm making my debut at the Aspen Festival, playing Bach's Fifth Brandenburg Concerto under Nicholas McGeegan's direction. I'll be making my debut at the Ravinia Festival, playing Bach's Goldberg Variations, on August 30th, and a couple of recitals at French festivals around that time.
0: And finally, the question we like to ask our interviewees on these podcasts, for you, what makes the Chicago music scene so special?
1: The Chicago music scene is, of course, a very rich one. We can begin with Chicago Symphony, Lyric Opera, and then wonderful musicians— who make up the scene. I think of Rachel Barton Pine, who is one of the most vital and interesting violinists on the scene anywhere, virtuoso both on modern fiddle, so-called, and on Baroque historic violin, and just one of the most wonderful People you'll ever encounter in your entire life, people like Rachel, organizations like Haymarket Opera, directed by my dear friend Craig Trumpeter, and I proudly participate in their projects most years. It's a vital and growing scene here in Chicago.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jury. I hope everybody will check out this really amazing album, something truly different and very exciting for wonderful works and wonderful performances.
1: Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me, and I'm deeply grateful for your belief in this project. Thank you.